All right, if you'll take your Bibles and open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we may have some uh, scriptures on the screen today, but we've had a little internet trouble down here today. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, lift your hand up. We'll get a Bible to you, and uh, then you can kind of be learning where things are at in the uh, book as well. So those who are new to Calvary Chapel, welcome. It's really good to have you. Um, been just uh, enjoying worshiping Jesus this morning and getting into the scripture now, worshiping him as we come to his uh, word. And we're in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. And we're going to look through verse 15 today. And if you guys would stand with me, uh, we will, uh, I'll read this. We can prepare our hearts for the context. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we come to your word, we hear from Paul that uh, we have a safeguard over our lives and over our souls as we know the truth. And just as uh, by your grace you have called us to be part of a church that just faithfully teaches and preaches from the Bible so that we could know you, your character, your attributes, your heart for us, so that we can know our true position before you as sinners, apart from you, but as forgiven and saved and new creations if we're in you, Lord Jesus. And so today, even today, Lord, make us wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And uh, those of you that have been joining with us, this uh, second Timothy is a letter written from Paul the Apostle to his friend, to what he calls his son in the faith, uh, a guy named Timothy, who is a pastor over the region in Ephesus. It's in Asia Minor uh, back in the day. And Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell, just a deep, dark, grungy dungeon, you know. And, uh, and he knows that his time is coming to an end. He knows that soon he will be um, killed by Caesar because of his testimony of Jesus Christ being the Lord of heaven and earth and 
And more than a man, more than a prophet, he's God. Uh, Caesar is not God. There will be no pinch on the altar of Caesar by Paul the Apostle. There will only be uh, worship to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul testifies that uh, not only did Jesus live a perfect life here on the earth, but he died the death of a sinner as a substitute for all mankind. That if anyone would believe in that substitutionary act, uh, they would be saved. They would be forgiven of their sins. All of their past and all of their mess-ups and just that wake of destruction that has followed their life, uh, it will be forgiven and restored. And uh, that's the testimony that Paul uh, declares, uh, but it doesn't end there. It also goes to that Jesus didn't stay dead but that he rose from the dead. And not many of us know people that have risen from the dead. It's kind of a unique thing, right? Uh, And Jesus, uh, as I prayed earlier on in the service, he spent 40 days after he rose from the dead walking around like, hey, 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 right? Hey, okay. And uh, over 500 people saw him just at one time uh, over that course of of, uh, 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven and he's going to return. And that's part of what Paul is preaching, is that one day every eye will see him again. And uh, everyone's going to worship him, whether you want to or not. Uh, Everyone's going to bow their knee before him and declare him to be Lord. But some will do it uh, out of of begrudging obligation before they are cast into the lake that burns with fire. uh, Because they have not been found in Christ Jesus. Uh, But those who are and have put their faith in Jesus as that substitute for their sins, As I talked about earlier, they will be forgiven, washed as white as snow. They will be given a a innocent status before the righteous judge, God the Father. And uh, they will have a place in paradise with the Lord forever um, because of the grace of God. So I would even encourage you right now, uh, put your faith in Jesus. If you hear him knocking on the door of your heart right now, he says in Revelation that, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears me and comes and opens that door, I will come in with them and I will dine with him and he with me. And it's a beautiful thing. Many of us in this room, we remember that day of just Jesus just saying, hey, you're a sinner, but I've come to save you from that. And I want to be your friend and I want to be your Lord and I want to be your savior. And so put your trust in him. It's a message that's not popular, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. It's a message that, that uh, you would be like, what's the big deal? But it's an affront to our pride. When you tell people they're sinners, when you tell people they've sinned, when you tell people that on their best day they'll never be good enough, as the book of Isaiah says, all of your rightness is like filthy rags before God and all of his rightness. But the beautiful thing is that he takes all of his rightness and he puts it upon you if you'll let him. So that you'll be seen to be absolutely righteous. But you got to come to that place where you hear it and you say, that's me. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. So Jesus, give me your righteousness. And so as Paul declares that, as Paul writes that, as Paul preaches that, church history says that that Paul even had an audience before Caesar Caesar Nero where he would preach that. And that that was the moment where Nero just went crazy. And he began to burn Rome, and he began to persecute Christians, and uh, he'd light them, dip them in wax, and stick them on stakes in his garden, and light Christians on fire, and ride around naked in his chariot, you know, shouting out, well, now you're really the light of the world, you know? It was all because of 
Paul, you know, Paul preaching the gospel. It can make people straight crazy sometimes. And so as Paul's writing to Timothy from this dungeon, he's going to tell him, you know what, my time's almost up. And so I'm going to be passing the baton to you. I'm going to be passing the torch on to you. And you need to guard the good deposit that I'm giving you. You need to guard the things that you've learned and heard from me that we know to be the scriptures, that we know to be the apostles' doctrine. Guard it. Protect it. Teach it faithfully. Don't let the, the bad men, the wolves, come and water it down or dilute it or, or preach anything else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we studied last week in chapter 3, verse 1, you need to know this, that in those end times, perilous days will come for a couple different reasons that have to do with misplaced love. Because it says there in chapter 3, verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves. And they're going to be lovers of money. And what happens when we are lovers of self and lovers of money is that we become proud and we become blasphemers and boasters. We become disobedient to parents. We are unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. We're brutal if we just love ourselves or if we love money. We're despisers of what is good. We hate what's good. We're traitors. We have no loyalty. And we're headstrong and haughty. And then we see another misplaced love. We are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And when we have those misplaced loves, when we don't love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, then all of these wicked sins just flow out of our lives. And even if you still keep going to church, and even if you, you know, your Facebook status says that you're a Christian or you're religious, if you have misplaced loves and you love yourself and you love money and you love pleasure rather than loving God with heart, soul, and strength, then you will be what we read in verse 5. You will be one who has a form of godliness but denies its power. And you know what? You may fool a lot of people looking so godly. You might not fool some. Because you got no power. But you certainly don't fool the Lord. As we see back in chapter 2, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from sin. Do you name the name of Christ? I'm a Christian. Facebook status? Religious? Dollar bill? In God we trust? Some sort of a form of godliness, but denying its power. And so Paul tells Timothy... But you be different. But you be different. Writing from that prison cell, he says, But you, verse 10, you have carefully followed my doctrine. In those last days, man, perilous times are going to come. Men are going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to be lovers of money. They're going to be lovers of pleasure. They are not going to love God. But you, Timothy, but you. You followed me. That's not a bad thing. He's an apostle, okay, picked out by Jesus himself, got to spend like 10 years in Bible college with Jesus in the desert, he writes about in the early parts of the book of Galatians, all right? He's an apostle. Lots of the New Testament is all about Paul defending that he's an apostle, all right? 
And because he's an apostle, he's a good guy to follow. And he would even say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my doctrine. Follow my teaching. You followed it. The language of this phrase suggests deep intimacy. One translation says, you followed alongside me. According to J.N.D. Kelly, it also is a technical term defining the relations of a disciple to his master and can be paraphrased, study at close quarters, to follow in spirit, to carefully note that person's actions with a view of reproducing, to take as an example. Timothy was Paul's disciple. He would follow him knowing like, okay, he's training me so that now I can train up others. He says, you followed my doctrine, you followed my manner of life, my general behavior, my general behavior. You know, man's closest friends and associates and acquaintances know his behavior and know whether it's followable or worth following. Timothy knew that Paul's was. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that, man, when we were with you, we were gentle among you, just like a nursing mom is with her baby. We were, that manner of life that we had, we weren't brash, but we were gentle. The manner of life that Paul would display included memories of his virtue as we go on here in verse 10. You followed my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance. It can also be translated, you followed my faith, hope, and love, which is what the great love chapter says is the greatest things of all, that faith, hope, and love, these things continue, in, and the greatest of all is love. John Stott says it's unseemly for Paul to boast like this. Paul is not boasting. These things are good things. They're general tests of a person's sincerity and even of the truth or falsehood of his system. And so, you know, it'd be interesting if I wrote a letter and I was like, hey, thanks for following, you know, my, you know, this and that and the other, you know, and it might just seem, man, is it boastful? I can't tell the tone in this. And at the end of his life, man, this, the guys that I've studied have said, man, this is just a great way to say I've run the race. I've fought the fight. Now it's your turn. Here's how to do it. Donald Guthrie said, if it be felt that the apostle locks, lacks modesty in relating his own Christian graces, it should be remembered that a man whose own race of life is nearly run may draw out of the main lessons of experience for the benefit of younger aspirants without the least suggest of egotism. And it just kind of reminded me of uh, my Grandpa Con. Uh, you know, my, this is my, uh, my mom's dad, Grandpa Con. And uh, he was one of my heroes in life. He was a World War II veteran, a B-17 bombardier, flew over Normandy on D-Day uh, in a B-17 and led squadrons of bombers and just... Love to hear his stories. And later on in life, he was a widower. Granny passed away. And he lived real close. He moved up to be near to us in Corvallis. And I would drive with him out to take care of my horses. And as we would drive, uh, Gramps would just tell me wisdom of life. But a lot of times I would ask for it. I would say, okay, Gramps, you know, 
if you could tell me one thing, you know, to, to learn of life, you know, what would it be? And he would tell me, and I'm really sad to tell you, <laughs> I was driving, I didn't write these things down, and I have times where I'm like, what did he say? What did he say? Huh. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll come to me someday. <laughs> the point is, take notes, okay, write things down so that you never forget these things. Paul told Timothy that, all right? He actually wrote it down for him. And he said, you've also followed, verse 11, my persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And so out of all the things that Paul could have shared of his life and the sufferings he endured, he picks these three different towns that were where Timothy was with him, very near to Timothy's hometown. If you look at a map, these three cities were kind of in line with each other. And as you read Acts chapter 14, which if you will with me, I don't have this on the screen because I wanted you to practice turning in your Bible, flip to the left uh, in the New Testament to the book of Acts. And if you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament. Those are called the Gospels. And after John is the book of Acts. And if you go to chapter 13, verse 42, we see the stories that he's referring to here. And it's interesting that in our text today, he says, you followed my persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to me at these three places. And then there's a dash in my Bible. I'm not sure how your Bible writes it out, but there's a dash, almost like a, a pause or a consideration and I was working on memorizing it this morning, but, but, you know, just to me as I'm reading it, I'm just thinking maybe the tone in Paul's voice, and I'm trying to, trying to memorize it and think of it, and, and he's like, you know, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the things that I endured, <laughs> the persecution that I endured, man, and then there's a really good thing right after that, but what was the stuff that he endured? Well, in Acts chapter 13, verse 42, we have the story from Antioch, okay? And when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that the words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Kind of a neat ministry beginning to happen at Antioch. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That sounds awesome. But verse 45, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And so they're going to end up leaving um, Antioch and heading down to uh, Iconium and starting to move on to preach to non-Jews, which was the call on Paul's life anyways. It just took this persecution to get him to obey or to, to really walk in his calling, I should say. And so uh, as you go on, uh, you see, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of maybe jumping ahead just a little bit. So he um, tells them that he's going to go and preach to the Gentiles. And verse 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord is being spread throughout all the region. 
But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. So persecution in, in the area of Antioch was starting to get hot. They were opposed by the Jews who were envious. The Jews were contradicting. They were blaspheming. In verse 50, they stirred up a whole bunch of people in the city. And these were like big-time um, men of influence and women of influence. And so we see just the, the phrase, raised up persecution and expelled them from the city. Sound like a good time to you guys? Sounds like a time of anguish, you know? I mean, Paul says in our text today, affliction, persecution. And so verse 52 begins with the Iconium story. And the disciples were filled with, uh, well, actually 51 says, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And we go into chapter 14. And it happened at Iconium that they went together in the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and the Greeks believed. So revival's happening, salvation is happening. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and just look at the language here, poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord and were bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs of wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and of the surrounding regions. And so then uh, we have in verse 7 of chapter 14, the beginning of the story of Lystra. And I'm going to try for the sake of time to summarize that as they're there, they see uh, they're preaching and speaking and they see a man kind of across the way who's paralyzed. And when they look at him, they look at him. They kind of lock eyes. This magic moment. Wait, that'd be lips close to mine. Eyes locking is how the song really should go. The eyes were locking and, and the man looks, supposing he was going to receive something from them. And Paul ends up giving him uh, the, the use of his legs. And so this wonderful thing happens, except that the whole city thinks, hey, these guys are gods. I mean, who can heal but gods? So they must be gods. And they begin to worship, and they give them the names of these Greek gods. And, and Paul says, no, 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 we're just men like you. Don't worship us. Worship God. And so then they went, uh, as the Jews came in, who were those jealous Jews just following them through the region, uh, they stirred them up to now persecute them and to actually try to kill them. And so, you know, talk about drama, you know, like, ah, they're gods. Nope, kill them. You know, it's like, well, pick, pick a side, you know. Um, happy medium would be nice here somewhere. But, um, and it says down there in verse 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and persuaded the multitude, stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And some actually believe that he actually was dead here, that he died. He writes in another epistle that, uh, he has uh, seen certain things of heaven that can't even be spoken of and that um, that he has been uh, to the third heaven. And so uh, some believe that this was that time when he maybe even died here, you know, but they can't be real dogmatic on it. They supposed he was dead as they drug him out of the city. Sound like a fun day again to you? Uh, verse 20 says, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So 
um, man, stoned, possibly dead, drug out of the city. You know, my mind has, you know, Mogadishu, Somalia, and the Black Hawk Down time where, you know, those pilots were drugged through the city and just brutalized and, and just that, that rage against Paul here. And what does he do the next day, you know? Like, he gets up and he keeps going. And he keeps going on in the mission of God and goes to Derby. Uh, Hughes writes, what a memory for Timothy, though. How that must have played and replayed in the young man's heart. Remembrance of these things steeled him for faithful continuance. As a youth, I never saw anything as dramatic as this. But I did see men and women stand up for the truth, even when it cost them. And so part of this continuation in Timothy's life is to you know, remember the men that have t- trained you and taught you. Remember our time together, Timothy. Remember the times that I was persecuted. Remember that time that I like died, you know, or everyone thought I was dead and they drugged me. Remember that? Wasn't that crazy? I mean, those are things. I mean, I've never seen anyone that persecuted, but I've been through things as well in ministry and in life. And when we live life together, we go through tough stuff together. And it helps bring assurance and spurs us on and steals us, as Hughes says, to continue in the faith. But out of all of that persecution, there's this great little positive recollection at the end of verse 11. Out of them all, the Lord delivered us. Out of them all, the Lord delivered us. You know, to be honest with you, I've just been feeling the Lord just stirring in my heart to to let my light shine in this community through more than just being a really nice soccer coach, you know, or just really being faithful and showing up and having a smile on my face, you know, and patting kids on the back and I just feel like as I'm reading the New Testament, I'm reading these passages and we're talking in home group through our discussion questions. Like, I want to I be different than anybody else. I want to be different than the other coaches that have a faith in a, in a false god that are also nice and also wear team colors and also are smiley when they're there. And I, I want the spirit in me to show that I'm different. And as we're talking, you know, what's the big difference As we're out in the community, wherever we're at, what's the biggest difference? It's the testimony of Jesus coming out of our mouths. It's the testimony that Jesus is God and he came to save sinners. And you're one of them. Sorry, pal. And I am too. But God, he's come and he's saved us. He's died for us and and he's risen from the dead. And I want to be like the apostles that never stopped talking about the resurrection. That was in every one of their messages And I think that that might set us apart out there. But with it will come persecution. But that encouragement at the end of verse 11 is, but out of it all, the Lord delivered me. He's always going to deliver us out of persecution, but it might not look the way that you think. And how great to see this week the, the man from Turkey, and I looked him up today and I read articles on him, Andrew something or other. Uh, who was released from being imprisoned as he was a pastor in Turkey, American guy. And the Lord delivered him, you know, and he's sitting there with President Trump and they're talking about things and he's praying for President Trump, you know, and all of that. But sometimes the deliverance looks different. Sometimes the deliverance is through death and being a faithful martyr. One way or another, the Lord delivers us, delivers us, us out of it all. As the psalm says in 3419, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. 
And so Timothy is called to endure, but not to white-knuckle it, not to pull himself by his own bootstraps. He's to endure with the strength that God supplies, to trust in God's great faithfulness to his people. Paul isn't just giving Timothy a great example to follow. He's pointing him to the source of the power. And in verse 12, it goes on to say, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the question is, do you desire to live godly? Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? And then there's this promise. Get ready for it. Be prepared. Be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can face this imminent suffering of persecution, of affliction. And as hard as we try to run from it, the only way to really escape it is by not living godly in Christ Jesus. And so we must ask, as we see this direct correlation between suffering and godly living, where are we at in this? And of course, there are times in church history where persecution is lighter. I think we are living in that day and age in our culture and in our time. It's a lighter persecution. However, I think we all know that it doesn't take much to open up our mouths and to speak the truths of the Bible. And very quickly, you will be raged against. <laughs> there will be rage against you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And, and as we work on the latter part of this message today, I want you to maybe roll your sleeves up and, you know, clench your jaw a little bit and get ready to do a little bit of work, okay? Because we are going to read through some scriptures that affirm verse 12. That affirm, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Lest we for some reason think, you know, it's a shorter verse. <laughs> probably was put in there by accident, you know. And he probably didn't really mean what he said. And it's up for interpretation. Because I kind of think that I can live this life and, and you know, kind of have that Facebook status as like religious or Christian, you know. And, and maybe just float by without you know, anyone getting mad at me or saying anything against me or without being an offense or seeming too judgy. Well, let's see what our Lord Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And sorry again for the internet problems. I don't know what's going to be on the screen. Sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. So if you want to go back to the beginning of the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, the Sermon on the Mount. DJ was reading from it earlier. And then every verse that we kind of have in this is going to kind of progress through the New Testament. So you'll just kind of be turning to the right from that point on. So Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's, that's a good promise. 
Oh, very happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, man, you're a part of the heritage of the prophets. They opened up their mouths, they declared the word of the Lord, and they were persecuted. And as you, a New Testament Christian, go into that walk of life, and and you begin to be persecuted, praise God. You're right on the path with the prophets. As Hebrews chapter 11 says, those guys were not made perfect without us. We have our role to play in the story of the hall of faith. Then flip a couple chapters over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 through 25. Sometimes I get a little ambitious in my heart this morning was to to pick out 10 different people to read these different scriptures today and just let you guys say it. So I don't think time really allows for that because I'm going to pick someone that's like, and it just gets awkward from that point on. (laughs) Especially I was going to start with DJ and that would have been like, oh, just kidding. (laughs) And you will be hated for all, or by all, for my name's sake. That's encouraging. Well, here's encouragement. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Antioch, hey, go to, go to Lystra. You know, Lystra, hey, go to Iconium. Okay, I think I got that backwards. But, you know, flee to the next city. Flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Flip over six chapters to Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus, let me give you a second. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Speaks that a life of following Jesus is a life of emulating the master. He carried the cross and we carry the cross. We consider our lives already dead as Christians. In Matthew 23, so flip on over a couple chapters, 23, 34. This uh, passage is, a, is a, really a condemnation of the religious hypocrites uh, that were in Judaism at the time. Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So Jesus prophesied of these great waves of persecution. In Mark chapter 10, so we were in Matthew, now we go to Mark. Matthew, uh, Mark 10, 30. And we're just kind of getting a fragment here when Jesus talks about anyone who leaves houses or mothers or fathers or children or or sons or daughters or properties and 
and for the kingdom of God's sake that they'll receive a hundredfold. And so many of us are like, well, man, that seems like a good return on investment, you know, a hundredfold. And yeah, you know, like, and then, but he adds, oh, you'll, you'll get that one day, but it will also be Mark 10, 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life so all of that reward of service and and we already begin to see how that is as we give time up with our family to be involved in the church and fellowship how the lord increases our brothers and our sisters and our moms and our dads and our grandmas and our kids I've got so many kids, you know, we're out on the soccer field and everyone in the church is, you know, practically doing soccer, you know, and it's like, hey, Donnie, you know, or hey, Russell, you know, and we're like, you know, thanks for being dad, you know, and, and just it takes a village, really, you know, and we're finding that out. But with the increase in our family comes persecution. You can flip over two books to John 15. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Barclay says, anyone proposed to introduce into his life a loyalty which surpasses all earthly loyalties, then there are bound to be clashes and collisions. And Jesus just has prophesied through the gospel of these clashes and collisions that come as we are not lovers of selves. We're not lovers of money and we're not lovers of pleasure as christians we are lovers of god there will be there will be clashes hughes says some form of opposition will come if we attempt to witness to a world that hates to be told the truth and loves the darkness and in the next chapter of john chapter 16 verse 2 jesus says that those people will put you out of the synagogues Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Just shows, you know, how warped the view of the godless will be. They think that by killing Jesus lovers, that they're actually worshiping God. And then in John 16, jump down to verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We go through various tribulations and rough things, persecutions, but the hope and the cheer is that he has overcome the world. So then as we get into the book of Acts, so you can just go to the next book over to the right and go to 541. It doesn't take long getting into the book of Acts once we see that the disciples have seen the resurrected Jesus. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now they're bold and courageous to tell the message of the gospel uh, in Jerusalem. And like right away, they begin to be persecuted. Okay. And, and with their message of the gospel, God is validating it with signs and wonders. And, uh, 
And these religious leaders in Jerusalem uh, are, are not happy about this. And so they are persecuted, they are imprisoned, they are uh, beaten, they are commanded to never mention the, men, uh, the message of Jesus again. And, uh, and you got to love the response. Peter basically says, uh, you know, whether it's right uh, to obey God or man, you decide. But we cannot but speak the things that we have learned and been assured of. And, uh, and so after they're beaten and released, Acts 5.41 says that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is the heart of the persecuted church. They've heard the words of Jesus that says, it's going to happen. They hated your master, they're going to hate you. You know, if you were of the world, they'd love you. But because you're not of the world, they're going to hate you. But, but blessed are you, happy should you be, because this is what happened to the prophets before. So what's going to happen to you. And we see that after they were persecuted in the book of Acts chapter 5, when they left the time of persecution, uh, they just rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. In fact, in just a little bit, they're going to have a church prayer meeting. And instead of praying that God would, would take away persecution, they pray for more bravery and more courage to endure the persecution. And I've always loved that story, though, of them leaving rejoicing that they were worthy to be suffering shame for his name. And uh, just this week, I was reading, um, still moving through the book, uh, C.T. Studd's biography. And uh, listen, it's just an exciting book, but listen to, this is after he's uh, left being a professional baseball player or cricket, and he went to China, and he just gave up his wealth to go to China, and he started, uh, he was part of the China Inland Mission with Hudson Taylor, and then after a lot of time there, he went to the Congo, and he began to just press deep into the jungles uh, to the headhunters and the cannibals, and revival, thousands begin to get saved in the Congo, and uh, listen to just part of the story, and it, it kind of picks up out of the middle of nowhere, sorry, I couldn't figure out where to start it at, but it says this, single women would go on long evangelizing treks among the villages where there is a shortage of men. In one district, the worst cannibal in the region who was reported to have a hundred black men inside him was led to Christ by a single woman missionary who visited his village. Here were the evidences of the Holy Spirit beginning to show themselves, for which the missionaries had prayed and labored, a brightness in their faces, new life in the praying, a hatred of sin, deceit, and impurity, and an exposure of it when it was found in their midst. The station, began, uh, the station work began to be done willingly and well, and the spirit of evangelism came upon many. I quote, the work is reaching a sure foundation at last, wrote C.T., and now we will go bounding forward. Oh, it is good to be in a stiff fight for Jesus. And then they write about a guy named Adzangui. Okay? Adzangui, for instance, one of the worst cannibals and ringleaders in all evil, with a face which told its own tale of debauchery, and yet who had been a professed believer some years, was miraculously changed. His whole face lit up. He took the lead in his church of 500. He went evangelizing among the surrounding chiefs 
and was imprisoned for his testimony and then got prisoners saved. He and Mr. Studd, though, were such leagues apart in their upbringing, became like two brothers. So inspiring was his example that his church sends out no less than 50 evangelists today, all supported by the native Christians. And of course, their story was clear back in 1920 or so, and uh, still there's a missionary presence in that church. Now listen, the story continues. Another Christian was beaten for witnessing, and instead of thinking himself hardly dealt with, rose and wanted to shake hands with the chief for giving him the honor of a beating for Jesus. For that, he got another beating. So this time, he remained on his knees and prayed for the chief. He was thrust into jail, but within a few hours, a whole group of his fellow Christians had gone to the chief asking that they too might have the honor of being put in prison for Jesus along with their brothers. Lately, since C.T.'s death, 47 natives have spent all one night in prayer saying that they had often danced all night for the devil and would now pray all night to God. So uh, what an incredible story that's just, you know, still today. I mean, that was 1920, but when you're talking thousands of years, it was like yesterday, you know. uh, You know, being imprisoned and beaten for Jesus and saying, hey, Thank you. I joined the ranks of the prophets. Something's going on around here. The Holy Spirit's moving. How about in Prineville, huh? Lord. I remember people praying this in prayer meetings. Lord, bring the persecution. And it's almost like the Lord says, hey, how about first open your mouth up about him? First talking about him. Talk about him. And then I'll do a purifying work of persecution within the church. If you're still in the book of Acts chapter, we're not going like through the whole New Testament. Like, don't worry, we're going to hop here. But, but you got to love Acts 14, 22 as well. Just uh, moving through Asia and strengthening the souls of the disciples, Acts 14, 22. The apostles exhorted them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, to me, that's right on par with 2 Timothy 3, 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Hughes said, such reality will stand us well in today's battles. Our culture flees suffering seeing nothing noble in it or beyond it, but Christians must expect it in the regular course of serving God. And those who do will stand strong. Look at Romans. Go to Romans. Just two verses out of the whole book of Romans. That won't take long, right? Hate to tell you, but if you can't handle like an hour-long Bible study, persecution is going to be really tough for you. So, (laughs) like... Maybe this is your persecution. Man, what did you do to God to deserve this? Like, I don't know. I'm just the vessel, okay? But Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the bond, uh, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Amen? Man, if you, we all love that. Man, we are adopted. We're his children. We're the children of God. Abba, Father, Daddy. Not only is, are we children, but we're heirs. We get an inheritance, joint heirs with Christ. Close the Bible, walk away, and, and rejoice. Open that Bible back up and read the next phrase. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You're not following the Jesus of the Bible if you think the inheritance that Jesus received was without suffering. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the disciple is no greater than his master. Philippians tells us in 129, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I like that because it kind of like pulls the rug out from under you, you know. I'm granted something as a Christian. Grant away, O oh Lord. Oh, to you it has been granted to believe in him. Yes, Lord, bring it on. Something about an inheritance or something or the other, right? No, actually, in Philippians, we're just going to go right into the suffering part. It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Boy, this whole Christianity thing, not what a lot of us have heard from the pulpit these days, is it? Not what a lot of us heard in that evangelistic crusade. With the big bands and the rock bands and the smoke and the fog and the money being dished out. The hot dog stand in the back. Enjoy that hot dog. Because you might be in prison not too long from now. It will hurt, as St. Augustine said. Even when no one assaults or vexes your body. For you will suffer this persecution. Maybe not in your body, but in your heart. It will hurt. Moving right along, Thessalonians, Peter talks a lot about the persecution for the sake of time. I want to read what I read to the high school ministry this week as we uh, read about in Acts chapter 12, James being killed by Herod. Listen to what Fox's Book of Martyrs says about James James's death. Now, James was the brother of John. They were the sons of thunder. And James was the first apostle to be martyred for Jesus. About 10 years after Jesus's resurrection. Regarding the death of James, Fox's Book of Martyrs narrates the church tradition. The next martyr we meet with, according to St. Luke, in the history of the apostles' acts, was James, the son of Zebedee, the elder brother of John. It was not until 10 years after the death of Stephen that the second martyrdom took place. For no sooner had Herod Agrippa been appointed governor of Judea than with a view to ingratiate himself with them, he raised a sharp persecution against the Christians. And determined to make an effectual blow by striking at their leaders, the account given us by an eminent primitive writer, Clement Alexandrius, ought not to be overlooked. That as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself to now be a Christian, 
than resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom without him. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup, which he had told our Savior that he was ready to drink. One unknown Arthur writes the description of each apostle's death. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at the distant city in Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward or upside down. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew was filleted alive. Andrew was bound to a cross whence he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance at Carmondel in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death at Salonica. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the Emperor Nero. And Johnny, why don't you come on up with the worship team? Let's close with a few other church history quotes that just show that this is indeed what was granted to believers. As Justin Martyr says, No one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we have set our faith on Jesus. For though we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture, it is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind which happen to us, the more are there others who become believers through the name of Jesus. Tertullian says, we Christians multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. So this persecution thing, it's granted by the Lord, and it has this sovereign purpose. It's the economy of God. It baffles us. More godly living equals more persecution, which equals more godly living, which equals revival, which equals persecution and godly living and revival. And it's a refiner for the church. And people come to Christ because they see it's real. That those who suffer entrust their souls to him as to a faithful creator. St. Jerome said the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. Charles Spurgeon says, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along 
as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. 